Hello, and welcome to On Meaning. I'm Eugene Leventhal. In this week's episode, I speak with Amy Buccieri, who is a therapist focused on relationships and sex therapy, with a particular specialization in imago therapy. Amy is someone who I got to meet through a mutual friend, and after a few conversations, I realized it'd be great to have her on the podcast to have her perspective on relationships. I really enjoyed getting the chance to explore the complexity of relationships, how the nature of relationships can change, whether the transactional lens is a useful one to assess relationships, and discussing what imago therapy is in the first place with Amy. We also touched on the idea that the term itself carries some baggage, and it's important to think about any connections with other people as relationships. That's to say the word isn't just for the links you have with family members or romantic relationships or something along those lines. And without any further ado, here's the interview with Amy. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for, for joining today. To kick off the conversation, do you mind just saying your name and professional title? Yeah. So I'm Amy Buccieri. I am a therapist in private practice in Pittsburgh, and I focus on helping people with intimacy, relationships, and sex. So I'm a certified therapist in sexuality. I'm certified in, in sex therapy, excuse me. I'm certified in relationship therapy and certified in EMDR therapy, which is a form of, or at least originated as an approach to trauma therapy. And just to clarify for the e EMDR, does that stand for eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing? I don't know why I phrased it as a question given that I just Googled it and I'm reading from the definition. But, <laughs> but you got it in, in all cases, yes. So that is eye movement, deprocessing, wait, desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah, those are the three arenas in which I am certified and I am a, I'm in the process of getting my application approved to be a sex therapy supervisor as well. I submitted that application a month ago today, actually. Oh. Uh, so, so I should probably follow up and see what's going on. Yeah. But um, yeah, those are the arenas primarily in which I work. Great. Yeah. Hopefully there will be uh, no surprises with getting the, the counselor part or the, the manager part done. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's um, it's tricky, right? So it's all being done by uh, volunteers. So the process usually takes at least a couple of months. I think a lot of times, depending on kind of like where they are and volunteer shift turnover and all that kind of stuff, but it takes, it takes a while. So I, I think it'll be okay. Cause my supervisor is also on the review committee. So, okay. <laughs> so I think I'm an in. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. <laughs> and so how long yeah. have you been practicing overall? So I got my license in August of 2011. I got laid off from my job at the time in November of 2011. And I started working in a group practice. Um, so doing the same work that I do now, but working under somebody else's shingle in November, I'm sorry, in December of that year. So almost 10 years doing private practice, which I guess sometimes maybe doesn't sound like a long time, but sometimes it feels like a, a long time. Like I feel like I, I don't, I don't do now what I used to do 10 years ago. I've really changed a lot. So mm. it's kind of interesting, right? So the format in which I do the work, right? The sort of the, the 
50 minute hour kind of format really hasn't changed in the last almost 10 years, but what I bring to it has changed so much. So it kind of reminds me of, of meditation in that way, right? The meditation is sort of the container and that doesn't change, but what changes is what I bring to it on a regular basis. So I feel like I don't even know if I would recognize kind of that, that way of doing things then in, in relation to what I, how I do things now. So, and the thing that I do now that I would say is probably the biggest difference is that I really focus on relationships and relationship work. And that's not, that, that wasn't really on my radar 10 years ago. So it's it definitely in that regards, it's a whole new day. Got it. So when you just started, you were not exclusively working with couples in the relationship dynamic. It, it was different. Mm-hmm. Not at all. I had come from a place of my experience at that point had been in addictions and it had been with seniors. So I had, at that point, I had come from, I'd spent years and years working in treatment centers on and off. And then I had had a job in hospice as a social worker in hospice for a while. That was kind of interesting. And then I went from working in hospice to working in a pilot program in a mental health agency in the community, a pilot program doing in-home therapy for seniors. Uh, So that's part of why I got laid off. We had that conversation about me getting laid off when I interviewed because it was a pilot program. So that ended up not working out in the long run. But yeah, I didn't, I started doing my uh, relationship therapy. So I'm an Imago therapist, which is the type of couple therapy that I do. I started doing that training in the fall of 2015, actually. So it hasn't been that long, but I can say that the Imago principles, I was first introduced to those in, what do I think about this? 2001. Um, and I've been using them in my personal life since actively using them in my personal life since maybe oh nine. And then I got into my training in 15. I think that's the timing of it. Okay. So yeah. And I just got and I got my certification in that just a couple of weeks ago, finally. Oh, congrats on that. Thanks. But, I put that off forever. <laughs> but before we <laughs> dig into a little more of what Imago therapy is and how that might differ from relationship therapy, one more follow-up on your background and journey in general is that. What was it about the relationship dynamic that made you want to focus on that? Is there something unique about relationships in in the context of people's lives that made you want to focus on that? Or was it more kind of fortuitous the way things worked out that just seemed the most interesting path at the time? So I would say it was it was both. Um, I think that I'm not particularly alone when I say that relationships are somewhat um, mystifying <laughs> or, you know, long, I think long-term intimate relationships are deeply and profoundly transformative, whether we choose for that to be the case or not, they end up being deeply transformative. And I would say that with rare exception, most, I think, contemporary Western people, which is going to be probably just about everybody listening to this, um, most of us don't really have a good sense of what does a long-term relate, what's a long-term relationship mean from the inside, right? So I think we can identify it from the outside, right? What does it look like? Okay, it means a white picket fence and kids and blah, blah, blah. So I think we can identify sort of what that looks like. But when you really get into the inner machinations of what makes it work, it gets really confusing. I think a lot of people really have had a hard time. I think most people have had, I mean, we all know people, right, who are going to say, So I saw my parents' marriage and I don't want that, (laughs) 
right, left, or, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, my girlfriend's parents haven't slept in the same bedroom since 1973, you know, or whatever it is. And we can all easily identify like, okay, I don't want that, but that doesn't necessarily get us, that doesn't help us kind of like hone in on what it is we do want. And I think I just, I hit a wall in my personal life as well that I realized I want something really meaningful. And like I said, I was first introduced to Imago therapy in about 2001. A good friend of mine from college had gotten engaged. I just graduated from college and she'd gotten engaged and her dad was an Imago therapist. And he gave them the Imago workshop, which is sort of like the flagship sort of Imago experience. It's a weekend workshop that couples go to. And he gave them that workshop for their engagement gift. And they said it was the best thing ever. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? Hmm. So I was totally intrigued. And then I tucked it away for a long time. And then when I came back around to it and I found myself really kind of in a, in a pickle, I, in terms of my own desire and ignorance about how to navigate relationships in a meaningful way, uh, I, I remembered that and I pulled it out. So yeah, so several years after I'd heard about this in 2001, I started incorporating it into my own life and it made a huge difference. Um, but then I realized there that that there was still more. And I began to realize that I wanted to be able to incorporate these act these things that it had so much authentic and personal meaning for me into the therapy work that I was doing. So that's when I ended up going to to starting the the training um, in 2015. The term Imago has come up a few times. So despite my my desire to ask a different follow-up, I think it's prudent now to <laughs> do you mind defining what is Imago therapy? <laughs> Sure. So Imago Relationship Therapy, I-M-A-G-O, is an approach to couple therapy as there are, you know, dozens, I maybe not, maybe a dozen uh, kind of approaches to relationship therapy um, or couple marital therapy. I think people use those terms often interchangeably. I try not to. I want to be more specific. But it is, let's see, what's a good summary? So Imago therapy really kind of came to public prominence maybe in the mid-90s when the founders, Harville and Helen, were on the Oprah show. <laughs> um, but it's been around, it's been around for a really long time. I think the sort of foundational book, which is Getting the Love You Want, I think just hit its 30th or 40th anniversary of publication, something like that. So the idea is that two people come together in an intimate relationship with healing and growth needs, healing to do, um, I'm sorry, healing to receive and growth to offer. And you, my beloved, are my sparring partner in figuring that out together, that that's really what this relationship is about. And this is about ways that I've been wounded and ways that I've been stunted and ways that I need to grow and develop and ways I need to stretch myself and ways I need to work hard to be able to help you do the same. And the inevitable knots that arise from from couples' attempts to do that and to offer that to one another. So Imago Therapy, I think, gives a, a beautiful, hopeful, consistent lens to couples who feel like, oh my God, I think we've reached the end of the road. We can't do this anymore. There's, there's, there's no way for us to move forward together. And I would say Imago Therapy offers the skills to help couples realize that that doesn't have to be true. 
Yeah, and jumping back to what you were generally saying about relationship dynamics, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot in the last six months or so, I, I think very intensely motivated by COVID uh, mm-hmm. and the realities of you know a certain degree of lonely loneliness that many of us are experiencing and feeling, and just how yeah, just the the term relationship is something that if you throw that around, I feel like most people will say, oh, it's me and my partner or maybe me and my parents. And a lot of the time, not in a positive context. Mm -hmm. And to think of, well, what is the actual landscape of relationships in a healthy person's life and Mm -hmm. how to more clearly communicate expectations? And, you know, the the idea of like, what's a personal or a, a social contract of sorts between friends to say like, hey, here's where I'm hurting and here's where I've been. And, you know, let's figure that out for you. And how can we actually support each other as opposed to just kind of blindly going in with never communicating expectations or where we're coming mm-hmm. from? And I feel like that kind of intentionality towards most relationships is not around. And so it's interesting to, to hear of what are these different approaches to try to tackle that, at least in the, the partner to partner relationship. Okay. Yeah. So the first thing I think of is one of the most powerful things that I've learned in the last, whatever it is, 10 years or whatever, is that the relationship itself, thinking about the relationship itself as an entity with its own needs and its own gifts. And this idea that there is, you know, there's me and there's you and there's the space between. We live in a hyper, this is not going to shock anybody, I don't think, but we live in such a hyper individualistic construct. I don't even want to say we live in a society that's that way, but we live in under the belief that that's, that that's the case. We live in such a hyper-individualistic world. We, we don't even necessarily recognize that space between exists. I think we ultimately, our world is so individualistic. I think the easy access to relationship usually ends up feeling more transactional right? So I'm going to tell you about my needs and you're going to tell me about your needs. And then we're going to like swap help. And when I don't want to swap any more help, or you don't want to swap any more help, then, you know, I guess we, we set that aside or I don't, I don't actually know kind of like the transactional sort of approach to that is, but this idea that there is a living, breathing, meaningful energy that two people share, I think intuitively, we all know that's true. You know, we all know that's true, right? You you meet somebody for the first time and there's this sense of like, I know you, you know, I feel comfortable here. This makes sense to me. You meet other people and you're like, oh, we don't have to do that again, right? So everybody has this intuitive sense of kind of how relationship space works, but we have kind of like garbage language to be able to talk about it. So that's, one, that's another thing I find really helpful about um, training and relationship therapy is, right, therapies about talk therapy. It's about words. So it starts giving me a vocabulary to be able to talk about the space between, which is intuitively and almost immediately recognizable for the vast majority of people that with whom I've worked anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So to move away from this place of transaction, you're asking too much, you know, whatever, whatever that even means to a place of relationality. Right. So I see that as, and again, that's like a new vocab word that came from my couple training. That if we're talking about being relational, what does that mean? That means we're in this dynamic place of connection in which my growth and healing is intimately tied to your growth and healing. And we're in this moving 
energy in which we each are in ideally a leadership role to keep that keep that conversation to keep that connection moving and deepening but i don't have conversations with people about that unless they've already sort of you know they drank this Kool-Aid but even when i start that conversation with people who you know haven't had the Kool-Aid yet it starts to make a little bit of sense and I remember when we, I feel like it was in our first chat, possibly, where we both realized, like, oh, we Martin Buber and I and now and that kind of relationship dynamic. And that, that feels so important of thinking of others, not in the, hey, you're this thing that's a means to an end in my life, but you are an entity that is equal to everything that I want to have in my life. You should be wanting to have in your life. And that kind of dynamic already, mm-hmm. I think, forces that thought of, well, how are we in this together, whether it's our specific relationship or in this journey of life together? Though I guess the, the, the latter one might be a little too big for a couple that's a, that's having an immediate problem. Yeah, they, I would say generally if a couple's sort of like in crisis, they're like, eh, we'll get around to that another time. That's but right. yeah, I, but I do think that this idea... And and again, I think the the idea of relationship therapy, uh, because the Imago approach, I've used it with polycules, which is a great word, right? So polyamorous relationships with multiple people. I've used the same structure with multiple person relationships. I think the 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 dynamic, the structure is so helpful for any kind of relationship, whether it's with other family members or even to kind of navigate sticky sticky wickets in the in the workplace. Uh, because it, it really, the technique anyway of Imago work is one in which it gives structure and predictability to potentially explosive, but certainly very vulnerable conversations. So I really like it in that way. I think it is quite generalizable, but I do think there is something about this idea. I, I completely agree that as re- on one hand, as revolutionary as an I-thou perspective is, it also feels so like a, well, of course, you know, of course it's like that. And yet, how many of us actually live by that I, thou, mm, I don't credo, doesn't sound like create the word, right word, but this this idea, right, that the, yeah. that all of life even, right, is what it would, how would, how would things be different if we took that to its radical extreme, right, that an I, thou relationship were indeed true with all living things, that it would be we don't even know how to do it with our our spouse. Like yeah. imagine doing it with, you know, a forest or something. Mm-hmm. I it just it feels like it just feels so foreign to the perspective that under which we currently live. That's my experience. Absolutely. I mean it not to zoom out too far thinking, but you know, that sounds like it's uh, yeah, let's have fun here. So, <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> In my mind, that that immediately made me think of something else. I know we've talked about when we've gotten into fun topics of consciousness and the like, where it's the subject object divide. And once you start viewing things that we are all part of a larger collective, like it or not, it's just there is a certain interconnectedness between things. It it feels almost harder if you've acknowledged that and assume and take that as a given assumption. How can you Mm -hmm. not look at things through that thou lens? How can you not prop things up to their being if you're like, oh, well, we're all equally connected in this large thing that no one really understands and is, you know, layered on this ball of chaos floating in the middle of the universe. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. just something that I I always think about. And to your point of (laughs) so few people take the time to 
try to break down and deconstruct and reconstruct their own internal thinking. You know, I, nobody taught me any of this when I was a kid. And I grew up with a very talented psychotherapist in, in the best possible way. I know that can go disastrously for some people. I, I was very fortunate <laughs> with how that played out. But even in, in a psychological home, undergrad, it's, it, it's still one of those things. It's a lot of the time at most it's, oh, well, here's a framework. It's not emotionally. How do you understand this? And so mm-hmm. I guess to bring it down to a concrete question, instead of me just rambling, you know, where, like does hearing the, it. where does the journey begin, especially in a couple's dynamic of exploring these large challenging questions ranging from like, I understand you have a fire to put out right now, but if you want to have not just this beautiful dynamic between yourselves, but in all of your relationships. Like, what does the beginning of that journey look like? Well, it makes me think of Joseph Campbell, right? And what is the commencing of the hero's journey? And usually that's because something blows up, right? Exogenous impact is the point of greatest flexibility within any given institution, right? So whether that's an institution between two people, or maybe that's the... We'll see what happens, but or or that's the sort of industrialized institution of our global economy and the exogenous impact being something like, I don't know, like a pandemic that it's that moment that we're like, oh, shit, you know, this is on fire. Now, what do we do? Yeah. And and that's always what it is. And I I think that that's it's OK. It makes sense. That's always what it's been in my life. You know, I've never been particularly virtuous about like trying to to level up it's generally when i'm so effing miserable i don't really have a choice anymore but to <laughs> but to try to like recognize okay this isn't working i have to come up with something else so i think that is the jumping off point specifically right for couples there's something bad has happened and maybe it's something spectacularly bad and i think in the in the landscape of a relationship right i think the the spectacularly bad is often something like infidelity or somebody gets really sick or something like that something pushes the envelope but you know plenty of couples come to me and say like i just had this thought just came to me you know at two o'clock in the morning staring at myself in the bathroom mirror and i just we could i just couldn't do this anymore mm-hmm. so we needed some some help you know so whatever whatever that moment of shift that i guess it can be exogenous or endogenous shock, right? Wherever it comes from, once it comes, we can't not, we can't ignore the call, I suppose, as they say. And I think at that point, what happens is when couple, this happens to me quite a bit, the couples will say, we have a wonderful relationship except for our sex life. And I find that sexuality is really, it is the thread of deepest intimacy in which how I think, how I feel, and how my body works all coalesces in real world pragmatic ways. This because sexuality is a natural function of the body. It is a natural, reasonable, healthy part of connection. And if there's something interfering with having that experience, it's a problem. It's a serious problem. And I think that often what happens is that there can be barriers, challenges that are so kind of deeply embedded in the normal pattern of interaction for a relationship that it's not until it shows up sexually that a couple says, wow, you know, this is something concrete. We're not having sex, for example. Yep, that's a problem because I can look at that and it's concrete and say that we need to work on this. So what's, what's the problem? And it's at that point that we begin to then kind of follow that thread and realize that there are 
often issues of how is it that we are or are not honoring one another as a vow? How is it that we are so anxious and avoidant that we're working to keep the peace instead of taking the risk to actually see and be seen as the human beings we truly are? So it ends up going real deep, real fast. Of course, that's not true for everybody. You know, if, if, um, but it's true in the work that I like to prioritize, which is sexuality over the long term, right? So a sex relationship over in a long, sexuality in a long term relationship, this is where like shit gets real. Like it really, really does. There's, there's nowhere to hide. We can't pretend like this isn't happening. We can't just kind of gloss over it anymore. This has hit a crisis point. What are we going to do about this? And what we have to do is is some really heavy lifting. Now, that being said, of course, sexuality isn't like that for everyone. Trauma can play a role. Heart disease plays a role. You know, I mean, all the all these kind of things. But the piece I find most compelling certainly is sexuality in a long-term relationship because we get down to these questions of meaning, of presence, of growth, and healing. And I do think that this, this um, deepening of the I-thou relationship is, is paramount. Absolutely. And that is a, a beautiful segue to the next thing I was thinking about is when, when you're when you're thinking about these dynamics, whether it's specifically focused on the problems that are showing up in the form of the of sexuality or any other aspect of the relationship, what role do you see meaning playing? Whether it's the idea of, you know, a relationship is involved, you know, two people, they might be on their own separate paths and they're trying to align them to some degree. You know, what is the kind of interaction that happens in that? process formation around joint meaning versus separate meaning? Uh, and mm-hmm. is that a part that's explored in the therapy? So kind of going backwards a little bit, is that a part that's explored in therapy? I don't know if I've ever explicitly had that conversation, but again and again and again, the conversation certainly comes back to what do you want to make of this relationship of which you are a part? What do you want to make of this? Because at the end of the day, I, I will often say this to couples in conflict who have gotten to the point that they're just like, well, I don't really care about this other person anymore. <laughs> so, the, or, or I'm so disconnected from this person and struggling so hard. I can't get super motivated about doing anything more for this person. I'm kind of at the end of my rope and, and any, any kind of like, you know, second wind or 12th wind or whatever I'm trying to do here to try to connect with you. Uh, it's not happening. At that point, the question becomes, okay, so you're still in this relationship and this relationship is here to support and challenge you. What do you want to do with that? What what do you want to do to make the most of the current situation that you're in? Because the, the, the idea being also inherent in imago therapy, and I think most couple therapy that has most approaches to couple therapy that have really gained traction, there's quite a bit of overlap, I find, amongst different effective approaches to couple therapy. I feel like they're just different dialects of the same language. And this idea that I'm coming to a relationship for my own reasons and how clear and committed am I to what those reasons are? Because one might make the argument, and I often will make the argument that, okay, so you want to disconnect from this relationship, fine. So what unfinished business are you going to take with you into your next relationship? That's your choice to do that. But if you have the opportunity to hammer some of that out here and potentially have a completely new experience with this person because you've gotten to a deeper level of healing, are you sure you want to just sort of like 
push past that before you've really mined all that. But the choice, of course, you know, the choice is always that of the individual. But I think relationship space challenges us and offers us things um, that we're, we can't get on our own. Again, it's that sort of the, the flatness of a, a transactional experience. Yeah. So does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. And, and to, to follow up on that, I guess when, you know, with, and I wonder if this varies given your focus in, in sex therapy versus, uh, versus other schools or different approaches or, you know, just whatever it might be, but do you feel as though, you know, I, I, you alluded to the idea of, hey, you've already found yourself in this situation. What's the meaning you can find out of this, right? We, and any, no matter how unpleasant things are around us, and when we are given less elements of control and points of control, we can choose to find meaning in that situation versus, I guess, the idea of exploring, you know, a larger self-actualization or one's cosmic meaning or whatever you want to put this big of, you know, what's just my narrative of why I exist in the scope of, of the universe and all the randomness out there. Mm-hmm. Is it, I'm imagining that if in a couple, and by the time they're actually going through therapy, if they're realizing that like, Hey, you know, we might be able to find some meaning together and like, Hey, we have a kid mm-hmm. or whatever. And like, we have this common goal of we're not willing to, to, give up fighting for this until we hit a certain point. But as they start realizing that like, Hey, who I am fundamentally as a human is not as aligned with you when we first connected in our twenties, thirties, whatever age, you know, if that realization is made at that point as a therapist, are you, are you thinking of, Oh, well, it sounds like there needs to be a part here, or does that kind of like couples might choose to power through it and you feel like it's your responsibility. Well, if that's the thing that you want, I'm going to help you do that. Even though based on these misalignments of larger scale things that you're now realizing about yourselves, there's a high probability that some of these problems are going to persist no matter how much you, you define clearly those common goals of like, Oh, well, we're not going to, you know, uh, divorce because of our child. I'm just using that as an arbitrary example. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it's a, it's a great question. And there's a couple things I think about. One is that I, I see myself when I'm working with couples as more of a a coach, even though I know like life coaching and stuff is kind of like a loaded term, but more like I'm here to help you figure out, I'm here to kind of um, push questions so you can find your own answers, right? I'm, I'm in charge of sort of like, what are skills that you might be able to apply to some questions that I can help clarify to find the answers that are the right fit for you at this point in time? So I do think that, I think that people who probably do like Christian counseling or something do have sort of like a a priority on my job is to keep this marriage going. I'm not that person. I think that relationships are here, again, to to help me grow and to heal. And if my relationship is not offering me the healing that I need and or if my relationship is calling me to grow in ways that don't work for me, right? Like my relationship is calling me to grow in the direction of my partner has said, I don't know, we're not, I, I don't want to have sex anymore. I just don't want to do it. It's too hard on me. I don't like it. Whatever the reason is that a growth and 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 that would be important to me for example is that a growth step that i'm willing to take that this relationship is calling me to grow in this way to change to explore different aspects of myself that's probably an example in which some people would say again i mean there's a million different variables but some people certainly would say yeah i can't i'm not going to grow in that direction <laughs> like i i'm just I, i'm not you know or 
an example I'll often use, right? You get a promotion to a job in New York City. And I personally could never live happily, I don't think, in New York City. But this is this is what you're going to do. You're moving to New York City. I don't I don't think I can move in New York City to New York City. So then the question becomes, how do I, what growth opportunity is this for me, right? To gr- grow beyond what feels good and comfortable and easy for me. Mm-hmm. And do I want to take that opportunity? Yeah. So I think I think that's certainly part of what a couple often is considering, especially when they come into therapy, right? Because they've already hit this kind of critical place coming into therapy usually that says, oh, there is this knot about the growth that I'm being asked to do to change and the healing that I'm asking. So you're sort of showing up for me in a deeper way that feels good and meaningful and reassuring and validating to me. There's a mismatch in that energy right now. And we don't seem to be able to kind of get from where we are to where we need to be. We end up sort of in this adversarial place. And I think often the 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 guide I put out there is what is what is the third way, right? There's your way, there's my way, what's the third way, which is something we collaborate on creating. So it is it is a a path, it is an approach, it's a journey, an opportunity that is more about the relationship than it is about me or about you. And for a lot of people that that's I mean it's quite confounding sort of at its outset. But there's a couple I worked with for a while who were really trying to figure out, okay, so we're in Pittsburgh, we're living in Pittsburgh, the plan of coming to Pittsburgh was not to stay in Pittsburgh. Mm. But then one one partner was like, oh, maybe I want to stay in Pittsburgh, mm. right? And the other one's yeah. like, oh, that I do not. Nope, still pretty sure I don't. So what are we going to do? Yeah. So they duked it out for real about what is going to be our third way. And they decided that their third way was going to be to move abroad. Mm. That that was the that was a better option than staying in Pittsburgh or going back to the town they came from. Moving abroad was the third way, and it was by far the superior choice. But that's just a, a great example, I think, of what opportunities relationship can present ourselves can present us with. But unless those opportunity, unless both people are really committed to figuring that out, it, it just it won't happen. It's a decision. It's not. It's not magic. Yeah. So you brought up a word right there, commitment that I kept thinking of. Is there this tension between, especially for couples that are just forming? And um, I mean, I feel like especially in this online dating environment where a lot of these apps and whatnot are programmed for novelty engagement and like getting excited about seeing different people (laughs) and everything. Yeah, yeah, we can we can try to unpack a lot of different background variables. But if the end result is that, you know, as you're saying, this kind of third path, it sounds like a very intentional joint goal formation and commitment exercise of, of forms. And so 100%. if you had a chance to give advice to a couple, say, you know, two weeks before they meet versus right at the beginning, right, you know, whatever that time period that's, I, I don't know where it would be most impactful, but to say that, hey, in that first meeting, you might not get to see the full picture of each other because it's only an hour online or with masks on walking in the park or whatever it is. And you know, <laughs> right. at what point does it make sense to start thinking about that third path? Or I guess to ask an even more specific question, is it ever too early to start thinking about the third path as a relationship? You know, is that something that's mm-hmm. only appropriate if me and person X are going out for a year and like now we're serious time to start defining our third path? 
Or is that something that couples can do right off the get-go in some form? It's a really interesting question. I would say this idea of kind of doing it as a, a kind of like preordained decision is probably something that I, I, I'm, I can't say for sure, but I feel pretty confident that that is the truth in traditional society marriages, right? If this is a, an arranged marriage or, you know, I get married when I'm 12 or something like that, there's this inherited kind of contract and approach to what does it mean to be in a, in a marriage? What does it mean to be in a relationship? We're both in it now. There's really no such thing in our world as divorce. So we need to figure this out. And I would say that, you know, one, one might argue that that Knowing that from the beginning can be a leg up. Now, I realize this is incredibly broad strokes, so I feel like I'm just going to stop here because it's such incredibly broad strokes. It's, that's yeah, you don't you don't have to think about it too hard for it to begin to you know come up with all the exceptions and everything. But I think that it's so interesting because I think that the the beginning part of a relationship, that limerence period, there it's like a relationship has two phases, and that limerence period. In, you know, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I just need you, you know, this is movies and songs are written about that and the whole thing. That is powerful and it's powerful for a reason because it's that feeling and that experience that really lets us know that this is somebody I have big, special, important feelings about. And then that gives us the momentum to move into the companionate phase of a relationship in which things become more of a decision than sort of like an instinctual response. But as I'm making the right decisions in support of a third way with my person, what happens is we then, one, with every knot that we unravel between us, we then have the opportunity to revisit that powerful limerence period that we had at the beginning. But the truth is, is if there were never, this is just I mean, I'm very open to exceptions to this, but my experience and that of my mentors has been that if there was not a limerence period, if there was not like a googly eyed, like butterfly in the stomach, kind of up all night texting with you kind of period, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And if we don't have that, it gets really hard to sustain the work of unraveling knots because that's like the that's the reward that we get for doing that over the long term. And so I do want to just do a quick time check because I realize we the, the time has flown by already. Yeah. And if, if we only have a little under 10 minutes left, do you want to touch on something like trauma or does that seem like not enough time to get into it? And we should focus on uh, kind of just following some more threads on the relationship side. And we'll find another time to dig into to trauma and consciousness and some other uh, fun topics. <laughs> um, I'll say just quickly about trauma, because I think it is it's such at least it seems to me in many of the circles in which I travel, that trauma has kind of a buzzy sort of quality right now. Right. And and in the late 80s, I believe Francine Shapiro, who's the originator of EMDR, talks about the difference between capital T and little t traumas, right? Capital T trauma is the obvious stuff. The Oklahoma City bombing, war, rape, the Holocaust. Capital T trauma are things that we can point to and say that is an abomination and it fundamentally impacts us. And little t trauma 
are often these things that happen in a much more, um, I don't want to say diluted, subtle, I think is the word I'm looking for, in a more subtle way. Sometimes it can be siloed into particular areas of my life, right? Maybe my little T trauma does not impact me professionally, but maybe it impacts me sexually because it's about what my body's value is. Or maybe it impacts me in terms of money, but it doesn't impact me in terms of friendships. So little t traumas, again, are more subtle. Sometimes they can be kind of siloed to particular areas of life. But the thing that makes them so powerful is they're often things that are happening sort of over the long term. These aren't sort of single episode experiences. And I think of trauma, and there's plenty of different ways to think about it, but often I will think of trauma as an experience that happened to me that never should have, or something that didn't happen to me that I needed. And that those that either the sort of neglect or abuse, maybe sort of of, of those two, those two experiences, then impact the my trajectory through life. Maybe not so much that I get thrown off the trajectory, but maybe, you know, I used to roll along in a circle and now I'm kind of egg-shaped now or something. And it changes the way I, I move through life. And that there may come a time that the implications or the cumulative impact of rolling through life egg-shaped when I was supposed to be a circle has now has now prevented me from moving further in my life than I want to. Mm-hmm. And I think it's often that moment of, oh man, everything I everything I have been doing to be successful in life is no longer breeding me success. What do I do? And oftentimes I have found that there can be this experience of a little T trauma, right? Something something that has accumulated for me in my life, a belief about myself, a belief about the world, for example, that is preventing me to get from getting to where I need to go. And I think those those limiting beliefs, right? As we talk about sort of in Instagram quotes and things like that, mm-hmm. these limiting beliefs, I think often can can stem from these little T trauma. And when it comes to unpacking and really understanding the impact of some of the the little T traumas to focus in on that for a moment, Mm. how much of that needs to start as a personal journey of the person experiencing that versus immediately you look in the relational dynamic. And I understand there's going to be no blanket response here, depending on the specifics, but especially if the little T trauma is being reinforced in the relationship, right? Let's take that specific Yeah, I think some people need to be in a relationship in order to get into therapy, and some people need to be in therapy in order to get into a relationship, right? So I think it can kind of go in both in both directions. And I would even venture to say that depending on kind of what my my trauma impact factors are, there may be some of both, right? Things I need to work on in order to get into a relationship, and then I find other things I need to work on that I would never have been able to butt up against if I weren't in a relationship. So. Yes, I guess. <laughs> yes, I don't know. Does this is that does that answer your question? Yeah, and I guess the yeah that 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 is a I think I feel like unless we explore a hyper specific example, I think that is a, mm-hmm. as as blanket of a statement that is applicable across <laughs> just when it's such general things. I you can't yeah. yeah it's always hard beyond it depends. Yeah, um, right, <laughs> right, but, right. Yeah, being cognizant of time. Oh, I have so many other follow-ups. We're definitely gonna have to do another conversation. But that'd be to, great to start wrapping up with the the question. I like kind of bringing us home with for all of the interviews is given your knowledge, what you've gone through. You know, where where do you personally find meaning in life? So I watched a PBS documentary 
uh, Cynthia Nixon was the voiceover. It was about um, who? What's the author's name? Hope is the thing that has fe- the hope is the thing with feathers. Emily Dickinson mm. about Emily Dickinson and Yo-Yo Ma was being interviewed and in in this documentary, and he said something like the power of art being that it is only within the very personal and specific that we can really identify the universal. Mm. And that there was something about the way he he, he phrased it, and I, I don't have the phrasing down, but that right, this idea that is within the very personal, the very vulnerable, the very hyper-specific that the universe is reflected. Yeah. Um, and it is that that loop maybe is a way of thinking about it, right? That reinforcing loop Mm. that without being able to engage that loop, I end up at sort of a dearth of meaning and I get real bored with whatever I'm dealing with and I won't do it anymore. (laughs) You know, so, so it, 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 therapy, again, it's sort of the, the universal within the very intimate specifics of a given relationship or a certain person's life or something like that. And it feels like such a a sacred privilege to be able to have access to the universal through the specifics of, of another. Um, and I take that, I take that responsibility very, very seriously. And has doing this work reframed how you think of meaning in the context of your own life? I think, I mean, I, I suppose, yes, in that the way I view or experience the universe from a new facet, right? Every day, every day that I that I go to work, I I experience the universe from a new facet, and that I take that on personally as being powerful and meaningful, and kind of like legitimizing, right? When it comes down for me to like, why am I doing this anyway? That's why. That's why I do it, right? If I were just doing it for money, there are other jobs that you know maybe I would choose instead, but. This is this is why I do it. This is why I do it. I think that's a that's a really positive and encouraging note to end on to get to Perfect. find different ways, whether <laughs> it's through career or whatever that cycle and feedback loop might be for someone to keep finding and iterating on what drives meaning and positivity in their lives. I, I do think that's a, a positive note to end on. And again, thanks so much for joining today, Amy. Oh my gosh, this was great. It was nice to talk with you again, Eugene. Thanks for taking the time to tune in today. On Meaning is created by me, Eugene Leventhal. You can reach out at onmeaningpod at gmail.com or you can find me with the handle of onmeaningpod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for now. Special thanks goes out to Michael Butler who has been lending a helping hand with some things as I've been getting the podcast started. You can also check out our website, onmeaningpod.com to learn more information about the podcast or any events that we'll be putting out. Until next time, be well and speak soon.